Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week the big news is the US 10-year bond yield surging overnight. The biggest move since Donald Trump was elected president. To investigate why it happened and what it means, I'll be talking to Chris Weston from Pepperstone and Michael Blythe from Commonwealth Bank. And it's also House Prices Week, so I'll be checking in with Tim Lawless of CoreLogic and asking him to put this property downturn into an historical context. And we've also got Dennis Atkins from the Courier Mail on politics and commodities and mining analyst at Fitch Solutions, Sabrin Shoudhury, on a report that she's just put out about technology in mining. And now for all the action on markets, here's Chris Weston, the head of research at Pepperstone. Quite a big spike in bond yields last night, a bit of panic selling, I think, in the US uh, Treasury market. What uh, was causing that, do you think, Chris? Well, I put, I put it down to, to three major factors, Alan. Um, I think, first of all, is, is you, you can't go past the strength that we've been seeing in US crude, um, and that is inflationary. And, you know, you saw a, an inventory number last night where we saw a 7.9 million barrel build, but yet US crude was up 1.6%. We are talking about $100 barrel oil. That conversation is real, um, and the resilience that we saw there last night is, 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 is pretty important. And so I think, you know, as crude's been going up, you have seen a strong correlation between the sell-off in the bond market, especially at the long end and what's been happening in, 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 in the crew complex. So that's something that we continue to need to watch out for. The second other big issue is, is the strength of the US data last night. It was super impressive. So you've got the ADP private payrolls number coming out at 230,000. Uh, the market was looking for 184,000. So obviously people are looking at Friday's non-farm payrolls number and saying there's obviously clear upside to the consensus of 184,000 jobs. Uh, but we're also looking at the ISM service number. And of course, services is about 70, 70% of, of US GDP. So when you're seeing it coming out at 61.6, showing you know, very, very strong growth, that, 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 that index is at the highest in 21 years, of course, you know, you're going to go and sell treasuries in that situation. Um, then I think you've obviously got a, a slight calming of nerves around the Italy thematic when you know, the government there have come out with revised deficit targets, which in a battle over a war of words, seems that they've um, you know, sort of blinked first. And again, I think those three factors saw um, you know, a real reason to be selling. But you know, if you have a look at the 10-year US treasury, up 11 basis points, you know, highest levels for a number of years of since June 2016. That's a big, big move. That is a big sell-off. You know, the back end of the curve is really selling off quite sharply. We're breaking all sort of resistance levels. You can go into the interest rate markets, have a look at the differential between the December 2020 euro dollar future contract and December 2018, which gives you an idea about what sort of interest rate expectations are priced in between that period. And that moved up 10.5 basis points, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in, in, in interest rate terms, that's massive. So what we saw last night was, uh, was uh, you know, a, a sort of once in a every now and again sort of scenario. They, these are big, big moves. So market really, you know, seeing a number of factors. But, uh, you know, what happens now obviously depends on what happens on Friday's non-farm payrolls number. But the higher these yields going, it's going to have implications for the global economy. It's going to have a, a big implications for investing more broadly. Do you think it brings forward your estimation of when the bull market in equities ends? It, well, I think rising bond yields um, is, is fine, as long as it's married up with the idea that you are seeing um, global growth moving higher. Um, but I think the, the recent PMI series that we've, we've, we've seen from, from across the globe was, was, was quite poor. In fact, um, if you look at JP Morgan's global PMI data point, it's actually the lowest level since 2016. So uh, manufacturing is, is on the decline, and that's not good. Um, but 
what we are seeing is the US as the standout economy. We've seen that for a while. It's the reason why the US dollar's up six days in a row because people are seeing monetary policy divergence, but they're also seeing economic divergence as well. But it's not so much a problem in the US. If you're invested in US equities, which of course a lot of people have been, um, as long as the economy is improving, and the economy in the US is, is red hot right now, there's no doubt whatsoever about that. And, and going rising rates, as long as it's a, a reflection of the economy and inflation expectations, and it's not married up by um, a Federal Reserve who wants to raise aggressively like we've seen in, in previous cycles, then, you know, of course, financial conditions are still fairly accommodative and, and equities will be bought on any kind of pullbacks. We're in that environment as well. But if we do start seeing an idea that wages are really going to spike up and people's inflation expectations really go, you know, a lot higher than where they are at the moment, then, then the idea that the Federal Reserve are going to raise more aggressively will see equities under pressure. Now, the chance of a recession in the US, in my opinion, um, are probably slightly higher than where the market's anticipated, which is about 15%. Um, but, you know, it, recessions don't happen in the US without actually a catalyst. They don't just happen by magic, unless, of course, there's a, a big sort of geographical event that happens. But on, in the whole, they're caused by a central bank who miscalculates a move. And as long as the Federal Reserve is saying they're going to be very gradual with these moves, then we don't have to worry too much about this. Um, but that said, um, you know, I think the equity situation is 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 still okay, um, and I don't, you know, I think the risk of a deep pullback is 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 fairly low at this stage. And of course, the leading indicator, which we're always going to have a look at, is what's happening in credit spreads and high yield credit spreads are at multi year lows at the moment. They're not giving equity investors any reason to be, you know, uh, reducing exposures too greatly. But you know, never say never. I think the the the, the chance of a deep deep pullback in these markets is very low at the moment, um, and the, the forward indicators that we look at. Um, are, are, are saying, you know, it's still fairly accommodative, but, you know, it's a watch this space still. Do, do you think it also means the market's saying they're not worried about the trade war impact, uh, or are they just saying they're not worried about the trade war impact on America? Well, I think the market's, well, the market's voted on the trade war um, for, for a while, you know, they you know, Chinese equities got slammed a couple of months ago, as they did in, in Hong Kong. So they've, they've clearly said who's going to be the, uh, the loser out of that situation until state-owned banks started buying up Chinese stocks. And of course, that market's closed today. But in terms of the US, I, you know, if you look at the way that um, the market's been looking at this, they clearly don't see this. Uh, and the way the bond yields have reacted last few days, it clearly isn't. They're, not, they're, they're saying, if anything, this is going to be inflationary, the price of goods for all these commercial, uh, these, these commodities that uh, these, these uh, Consumer goods that they bring in are obviously going to go up in price, and that's obviously going to be uh, have a hit on consumer consumer inflation. But it's probably not going to do too much to U.S. growth at this stage. But let's not forget how how Donald Trump works. He always comes from from a position of power. He goes into bat very very hard, and then he rewinds it. He, he rewinds it and, and dials it back as, as uh, to get to a resolution. And then he comes out with the PR, the necessary PR, which is going to need for the for the for the midterm elections. So I, I just think the way that the the U.S. market's reacting. Um, the way that we've only seen very subtle shifts in inflation expectations in the bond market. People don't see the trade war at this stage being uh, a significant um, risk event for the U.S. economy. Um, and if you look at what the Fed have been saying, they're saying, you know, well, you know, we have to wait until we actually see signs of this creeping up in the data. So the thing for me is, is really what happens in December 
in the December Fed meeting, of course, at the moment, the market is expecting the Federal Reserve to raise rates another time. Um, but we would have a lot more of the data then. We'd have a lot more of the, 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 the fast-moving data and, and understand um, whether or not the Federal Reserve's outlook on um, their projections for statement of monetary policy are actually going to change as a result of the tariffs. At the moment, we just don't know enough about how this is going to impact consumer behavior, business behavior, and how that creeps up into the data. But in the December meeting, um, the Federal Reserve will have a lot more evidence and potentially change and alter their um, their economic projections based on, on new news. Thanks very much, Chris. Pleasure. Thank you. And now to talk about the economic scene, let's turn to Michael Blythe, Chief Economist at Commonwealth Bank. Michael, there's a bit of data out this week, but first let's talk about what happened last night with US bond yields, which jumped quite sharply. What impact is that likely to have in Australia? Well, uh, we'll probably see some uh, some follow through here, of course. But whatever happens in the US overnight tends to get reflected in in our markets uh, as uh, as well. Uh, but I suspect we wouldn't see the full flow through uh, come uh, come through. Uh, the Australian economy obviously not running as strongly as the US economy appears to be uh, at the at the moment, and uh, uh, clearly the Fed and the RBA are are on different trajectories at the moment as well. I suppose I'm wondering whether there's going to be a long t- longer term impact on the Australian share market and perhaps the the Australian property market? Well, I think it's uh, certainly a reminder that uh, interest rates won't stay low uh, forever. Uh, I mean, clearly, uh, that kind of global benchmark, uh, US Treasury bond yields have been uh, creeping higher for, uh, for a while now. Uh, they still remain low by any kind of longer run uh, perspective, but we should all be prepared uh, for um, higher interest rates, uh, not just in the US, uh, but uh, ultimately in Australia as well. Uh, and uh, that will be reflected uh, in other markets in Australia, the equity market, and uh, uh, you know, of course, it's another potential headwind for the uh, Australian property market as well. On to the local data. What did you learn this week, Michael? Uh, well, uh, we, we learned the housing cycle is uh, continuing to, to roll over, uh, further falls in house prices, and the sense there was no uh, surprise there. Uh, the uh, the biggest surprise, I think, from a housing perspective, was the large fall we saw in in building uh, approvals uh, for uh, for August. So it does look like that uh, kind of construction boom in the residential side that's been uh, uh, very good at generating uh, activity and jobs in the Australian economy is has peaked and is starting to uh, to move lower. Uh, and uh, potentially becomes a drag on uh, the uh, the economy overall as we move through the the next year. And it's yes. important, I think, because. Uh, you know, Typical residential construction downturns uh, can take uh, more than 1% off GDP growth uh, and obviously have a negative impact uh, on the employment side and uh, uh, quite a big flow through to the rest of the economy as well. Uh, On our analysis, basically every dollar you spend on residential construction, it uh, generates $1.32 of spending somewhere else in the economy because all those new houses need carpets and furniture and the the like. So uh, uh, any kind of downturn that gets underway in that residential construction story will uh, flow through to other important parts of the the economy as well, such as the retail side, which is already uh, obviously pretty soft. So what sort of impact is it likely to have on GDP growth next year? Uh, well, uh, we don't think there's too much downside, um, to uh, to be honest. Um, Australia's population growth uh, is uh, still uh, very strong. And in fact, uh, if we uh, look at the, the ratio of uh, uh, new construction to population growth, uh, despite the biggest construction boom we've ever had, that ratio is still running below average. 
So in a sense, we need to keep building at uh, very high rates uh, just to kind of keep up with that population uh, story. So it's not going to add anything to growth over the next year, uh, but the potential drag we think will be pretty small uh, as uh, as well and uh, uh, probably something of the uh, the order of a, a quarter of a percentage point uh, at, uh, at most, we think. And what about the combination of uh, strong continuing prop- population growth, as you say, uh, and uh, the decline in construction, is that likely to put a floor under house prices? Yes, I think that, that limits how far um, things can fall. And uh, uh, you know, probably the main driver of uh, what happens with the prices from here is uh, no, not so much the kind of underlying demand side, but uh, more just the sheer scale of the increases uh, that we saw over the uh, the previous uh, few uh, few years. And uh, now, when you look at the uh, trough to peak move in Sydney prices, up 74%, uh, uh, well, I think just the size of that rise uh, it potentially gives you a bigger fall uh, from trough to peak, uh, even if the, the population story remains uh, pretty supportive overall. Great to talk, Michael. Thank you. Not a problem. Now for our monthly chat about house prices, here's Tim Lawless, Head of Research at CoreLogic. Tim, decline of 0.6% national house prices in September. Could you put that into context for us, compare what, you know, not just the September, but, you know, the past 12 months or so of decline from peak to trough with previous ones? Yeah, sure. The, the, since the market peaked in September last year, so, so the downturn's been running for 12 months now, We've seen values fall by a total of 2.7%, so a relatively mild downturn. To put that into some context, if you look at the previous downturn, which ran between June of 2010 and February 2012, over the first 12 months of that downturn, we saw values fall by about 3%, and uh, they kept on falling uh, to, to a total of 6.5% down. But the, uh, the the worst of the month-on-month declines was down about 0.7%. of a percent. So... We're actually seeing this this downturn where at the moment is, even though it is relatively broad-based, it is quite mild and it does seem to be very much controlled based on uh, on the, the tighter finance and, and regulations we're seeing. That uh, downturn you talk about 2010 to 2012, it was quite long. It was almost two years, I think, 21 months. But as you say, relatively shallow, 6.5%. The one in the GFC was short and sharp, wasn't it? Down 7.9%, but only 12 months. So we've kind of almost gone, well, we have gone past the duration of that one. Yeah, so it's the current cycle is uh, is looking much more like a slow melt. And the big difference in the GFC, of course, was this was was a real economic shock. And I think that downturn would have been much uh, much deeper if we hadn't seen a lot of stimulus introduced into the Australian economy and, and of course, the housing market around the first home buyers grant boost, uh, the school halls, the cash handouts, the insulation, all that sort of stuff really uh, did help to bring the economy out of um, uh, what could have been a much, much steeper uh, decline. You helpfully sent me a chart of the month-on-month changes in dwelling values going back to 1988, so fairly long way. I'll tell you what, and I'll put that chart on the, on the website as well so, so listeners can look at it, but what strikes me about just looking at that chart is that the peaks have been getting lower and the troughs have been getting shallower over that time. I mean, every peak in prices in terms of the monthly change has been lower than the previous one. And every trough is shallower than the previous one, virtually. It, it does, oh, we're not quite, suggest, but, but just about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it does suggest the marketplace uh, clearly is very cyclical when you look at um, you know, the month-on-month changes and just the pattern nationally. Um, it, it's very clear that uh, um, every growth cycle is followed by some level of a downturn. And generally, those downturns uh, last around about 10 to, to, to 14 months, depending on, on what, uh, what, what phase it's been and what, what's happening in the economy. That's the really interesting thing about this downturn is it's not being influenced by monetary policy or uh, um, changes in, in, in interest rates. This is really about credit availability and regulation, which I think is probably one of the reasons why the, uh, um, the, the level of decline has been quite modest. And do you think that um, th- that's because the, the authorities are managing it or will be simply because it, it would be expected that, uh, that a decline caused by the availability of credit rather than the price of credit – uh, would be more manageable, you know, w- would be the sort of thing we're seeing at the moment? Well, I think it's a bit of both. And, and clearly this, this is being managed. And if we did see the marketplace move into a more material downturn, then potentially some of this this regulation could be wound back or we could see other stimulus come into the market. But the other factor here, I think, um, comes comes about the fact that economically, we're still seeing Australia's economy performing reasonably healthily. We're seeing unemployment drifting lower, 5.3%. Underemployment's the lowest it's been since 2014. Population growth is still pretty strong. Uh, mortgage rates are still very low, and we're seeing first home buyers coming back into the market. So I think there's a lot of factors offsetting the, the tight credit uh, restrictions as well, which I think is helping to, to, to balance out um, this downturn. Uh, it's probably worth mentioning that when you say 2.7% decline, that's obviously a national. The uh, Capital cities are down 3.7%. The regional areas are still up a bit, so that's a bit of an offsetting factor there. But also within the capital cities, there's ups and downs as well. Can you just take us through, in particular, Melbourne and Sydney? I mean, how much have Sydney prices now fallen, peak to trough? And is Melbourne starting to catch up in terms of the uh, the extent of their declines? Well, Sydney and Melbourne are now leading the downturn. We've seen uh, Sydney values fall by 6.2% since they peaked back in July 2017. So that's the the largest fall of the major capitals, at least. Uh, Melbourne's down nearly 4.5% since the market peaked, but it, it did peak uh, back in November, so a bit later than, than what Sydney did. And absolutely, Melbourne is catching up to Sydney. Uh, over the quarter, over the September quarter, Melbourne values were down 2.4%, and that was the biggest fall of, of any of the capitals. So broadly, we're now seeing four of Australia's capital cities in annual decline. That's Perth and Darwin, which have been in a long-running downturn. Sydney and Melbourne are now uh, um, seeing values falling uh, on an annual basis, and that will probably continue. But all the other capital cities are still seeing some level of of subtle growth, but but clearly their their growth rates have also been impacted and, and have slowed quite sharply relative to a year ago. So, Crystal Ball, do you think that – does it feel to you like we're in for a length of decline like 2010 to 2012, i.e. close to two years, or something shorter in along the lines of what we usually see, which is, as you say, 10 to 12 months? I think this probably will be quite a drawn-out uh, downturn, and uh, you might describe it as a slow melt in many ways. We're not expecting uh, credit to, to loosen up anytime soon. In, in fact, it may even get a bit tighter considering – the interim report's been handed down from the Royal Commission and, uh, and lenders are clearly going to be quite conservative in their lending practices. So I think uh, with, with that in mind, we will continue to see investors uh, falling away in terms of um, their level of demand in the market. Investors are still about 41% of new mortgage demand. So uh, um, if we do see investor numbers fall away further from here, 
that does leave a bit of a hole in uh, in overall demand, which which may be partially offset by first home buyers, but uh, probably not completely. Yes. Well, so do you think that there are uh, signs that um, other capital cities are going to join Melbourne and Sydney in the downturn? You know, and actually, you know, not not the ones we've seen, but capital cities like Hobart, Adelaide, and so on. Are they are they heading for downturns as well? Do you think? I think both uh, the, the markets you mentioned, Hobart, probably is, is the most likely to, to move into some level of downturn, simply because we have seen affordability constraints really become quite challenged in that market. And uh, of course, the, the growth rates have been very solid up until just recently. We've actually seen two of the past three months have seen Hobart values slip a little bit lower. Brisbane uh, does seem to have uh, um, much more diverse growth drivers. It's uh, It's very affordable. We're seeing population growth really ramping up. Um, but in saying that, the, the rate of capital gains has is, is clearly slowed down from a year ago. Um, and it's it's almost the same situation in Adelaide, not, not quite as deep an economy or uh, strong population growth drivers, but, but a relatively stable outlook for, for Adelaide as well. Oh, great to talk, Tim, as always. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Good to speak. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And now to discuss politics for the week, here's Dennis Atkins, National Affairs Editor for the Courier-Mail. Well, Dennis, how do you think the negotiations over the GST carve-up have gone for uh, the new Treasurer, Joss Frydenberg? Well, if he thought he was going to get agreement, um, uh, then he was right. But he got agreement on uh, uh, among the states to oppose what he was doing, with the exception of Western Australia. Um, now, the states went into this meeting uh, agreeing with the principle that, that Josh Frydenberg was putting forward, which was that there should be a uh, guarantee that no state would be worse off. But they wanted it in writing. They wanted it in legislation. And the Commonwealth's not prepared to do that. And uh, I think if we look at a, a graph which uh, New South Wales... Uh, Treasury put together and mysteriously ended up in uh, the Telegraph this morning. Um, this shows that if there is another mining boom, then Western Australia will be 25 billion better off, and um, everybody else, uh, led by New South Wales, will be worse off. And, uh, New South Wales will be 5.5 billion worse off, and um, uh, and so on. Uh, 4.5 billion in Victoria and 3.2 up in Queensland. So um, you can see why the state treasurers, other than um, uh, the treasurer from WA, uh, want this in writing, because they don't want to see a a situation where we go back to a mining boom, a flood of money comes into the West, they then get their GST receipts going through the roof, and and they get penalised. So... Where, where we go from here, I don't know. There's a, there, yeah, there's a standoff. The uh, um, the states are pretty unhappy. Um, although, if the the government the government has to get some GST legislation through the parliament, I think they're going to do that anyway. Um, uh, Labor says that they'll move in an amendment guaranteeing what the government has been talking about. But if that doesn't get support in the Senate, which is uh, unlikely, um, uh, then they'll wave it through. They'll wave the government's legislation through anyway. 
I mean, obviously the government is is, try, is seeing this as a, a potential election issue. Are they right? I mean, do, do people really care about this apart from those in Perth? Uh, well, they do in Western Australia, but uh, they're, they're, a, they're a different uh, um, kettle of fish over in WA. The, the Western Australians get very up, uh, uh, exercised about GST payments. Um, if, if you worked up a campaign in some of the other states, you might be able to um, get some popular support uh, to oppose what the government's doing, but I doubt it. I, th- I, th- I think that, you know, sort of, uh, while it's theoretical, which is where we are at the moment, uh, the federal government's fixed up the Western Australian problem uh, and these other arguments are basically theoretical. They're sort of based on if there's a mining boom and what might happen sort of 10 years down the track. So, you know, it, 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 this is not something that you're going to whip up into a, a popular campaign one way or the other. I mean, obviously, we're into uh, election campaign mode now. How do you think both sides are going now, or each side is going? Uh, well, I, I think that Scott Morrison's actually doing a lot better than people uh, thought. Um, I think he's, he's, uh, he's managing to, to connect with the public um, quite well. I've, I've picked up quite a, a positive uh, a response from people in the street, people who's, you know, sort of who I know and who know me, and uh, you know, that, that aren't sort of involved in in the politics stroke media bubble, um, and and they like him. They, you know, uh, uh, the the bloke at the local bootmakers um, was telling me the other day that uh, you know he, he he said, oh look, he's better than the last two, and uh, you know he he's got a, a no nonsense attitude to him, and I think I think that's right, and I think. The public are picking up on that now. You know whether that can turn around the dire political straits of the coalition. Well, you know we'll have to see the elections uh, six to eight months off. Um, but he he may uh, get them into a better position than than where they were and where they were probably heading. Uh, Shorten and, and Labor are still you know sort of marching on. Uh, Shorten. Uh, is trying to get Labor back onto um, the policy agenda, which they've you know, used pretty successfully in the past. Uh, and his big item this week was to build on uh, um, build on um, uh, uh, the previous uh, Labor initiative to bring um, preschool down to four uh, four year olds. He's going to take it down to. Um, to three-year-olds, uh, three three yeah, yeah, which is uh, it's it's expensive. It's one point seven five million a billion over uh, four years, um, and uh, um, you know so uh, you know the but it is something that is going to be very popular, especially with with women. Um, do you think that the Labor Party is vulnerable at all? And I'm thinking here about uh, in particular about the ACTU's now call. Uh, to end uh, enterprise bargaining, um, do you think there's a problem? Do you think the Labor Party might have a problem with industrial relations at all, uh, or anything well, else it, with that, for that matter? Well, it may. I mean, you know, sort of. Um, I, I think that you know that, that there there's a fair bit of support in in the workplace for better pay rises and bigger pay rises. Uh, whether um, a big fight between organised labour and business 
is going to benefit Labor is is, uh, another thing altogether. I I think it it could be dangerous territory for um, for Labor. Um, You know, the, the one one Labor politician said to me a, a while ago that uh, that trade unions up until recently had fallen off the public radar but with the um, elevation of uh, Sally McManus to the head of the ACTU a feisty very you know in your face and also very high profile um, uh, trade union leader uh, people are noticing again and it, it breaks both ways for the Labor Party. There's some support, mainly from Labor's traditional base, but um, uh, swinging voters don't like it so much. They they worry about it. So, you know, th- this is a potential issue. Um, I think the other thing that, that Labourers may have to worry about, it hasn't been a problem yet, is, is, is something you actually wrote about recently, and that is Labor's tax agenda. I think uh, in particular uh, their moves on um, retirement taxes and uh, and negative gearing. If, if the government's smart, they can whip up a campaign on, on both of those fronts. Uh, we haven't seen much uh, from the government yet, but maybe they're keeping their powder dry. Yes, indeed. Okay, thanks, Dennis. Okay, thanks, Alan. Joining me now to talk about mining technology, which is a hot topic at the moment, Here's Sabrin Chattery, the mining analyst with Fitch Solutions. Well, Sabrin, it's starting to look as if investors should look at mining companies as technology companies, not just mining companies. Do you think you agree with that? Yes, of course. Can you just describe the technology that the mining companies are introducing now? Well, the mining landscape um, right now, it's in the age of technological disruption. Uh, So... Almost all the mining companies in the world are in a rush to um, implement the latest technologies uh, depending on their financial capabilities. And um, the latest right now is definitely AI, um, artificial intelligence, um, uh, machine learning, as well as many other uh, types of technologies such as automated trucks, uh, which is part of artificial intelligence. Um, also, uh, automated drills, sensors, um, cloud computing, drones, and just name it. So, um, yeah, these are the latest uh, technologies implemented in uh, various mines all across the world. I take it that it's more than simply driverless trucks. Is that right? Yes, definitely. Uh, dr- even driverless trucks are not very simple. Uh, a lot of machine learning, um, artificial intelligence goes behind a specific driverless truck. Um, but that's not it, definitely, no. Um, uh, miners such as Rio Tinto, uh, FMG, uh, BHP, Valley, uh, they're also implementing, implementing other types of technology such as um, Internet of Things, um, IoT, as you call it, industrial IoT. Also, um, um, lots of other types of technologies such as predictive um, health tools, um, intelligent um, intelligent uh, railway systems. So it doesn't stop there. You mentioned BHP, Fortescue, and Rio. Is there a big difference between the technology that each of them is introducing? Is any of those companies ahead of the others? 
Yes, uh, so Rio Tinto is definitely ahead of the others. The type of technology would not vary too much across uh, the industry, but I guess it would be the timeline uh, that uh, takes Rio apart from the others. So Rio Tinto first um, first implemented its autonomous haul truck in 2008, so 2008. Um, that is way ahead of the others, such as Fortescue and um, BHP. Uh, so right now, Rio also has 130 um, a plan to uh, a plan to incorporate 130 autonomous trucks by 2019, which is larger than any other company so far in the world. Um, so Rio also, many other things also differentiate Rio Tinto from the other companies. They have their in-house, uh, in-house, um, in-house technology team. They have their own, um, they have their own uh, 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 mass RTVI fusion modeling and development team. They they have various partnerships with universities. They have their own data science unit. Um, so they've come a very long way since 2008, and other companies are only recently in the game. You've got a chart in your report of Rio Tinto's cash unit costs at Pilbara come down from $20 US in 2013 to, what, about $13 now. Is, yep. Firstly, is that the largest reduction in unit costs among the Pilbara miners, or has Fortescue done better? Well, um, I think right now uh, Rio Tinto, uh, Rio Tinto's cash costs are actually very competitive. Um, they're probably one of the best right now. Uh, they they are comparable to Valley in uh, South America. So um, yeah, this is quite a strong reduction, and it's also come from a lot of efficiency enhancements uh, through the different types of technology. So, yes, I would say Rio is ahead of the game in decreasing cash unit costs as well. And do you think that there are further reductions possible from here? Further reductions will be difficult, uh, I will not lie, but yes, it's still possible. Um, it's definitely still possible, yes. But not, but not as much as we've seen in the past, is that what you're saying? No, I mean costs are already so low. It's uh, right now uh, close to twelve to thirteen dollars uh, a ton. So how much lower can they go? And obviously, you wouldn't expect more than fifty percent decrease, like you've seen from twenty um, twenty. Uh, you know, long before. I mean, twenty eleven, twenty twelve. So those were uh, twenty two dollars a ton. Days and right now you have them decreased to almost 50%. So you you won't be able to see 50% decreases in the coming years. But yes, costs will surely go down. Do you think investors need to change the way they think about mining companies now? I mean, obviously traditionally investors look at mining companies and they look at how much reserves they've got and what the production is and what the price of the commodity is. Should investors think about mining companies differently now and and think about them more as technology businesses? Well, ultimately, um, before you look at uh, what type of technology a firm has, you need to you need to observe whether they are actually an efficient company already. 
So even before uh, having technology and operations, uh, investors need to see whether a specific company is uh, stringent in um, its expenditures, whether they have good governance, whether um, the, their plans for the coming years are um, in line with uh, what the, the market demands. For example, whether the specific companies are investing in commodities of the future instead of uh, traditional commodities like coal and iron. Are they investing in things that would be required in, uh, you know, uh, electric vehicles, for example? Uh, are they investing in cobalt that is using uh, that is used in electric vehicles? Are they investing in copper, uh, higher grade steel, aluminium? So these obviously uh, need to be looked at by investors. And of course, technology is an addition to that. But I wouldn't say technology is the main thing you need to look at. Uh, can you see a time when virtually no human beings are working in mines in the future? They're all kind of behind computers somewhere operating autonomous vehicles and so on? Well, um, the future is actually here, if you want to say that. Uh, for example, Rio Tinto is coming up with its new Kudadiri project. Um, it is not only the world's first fully paperless mine, it's also going to be the world's first um, people-less mine, if you put it that way. So uh, it's going to be the smartest mine uh, built so far uh, in the world, and it's going to have um, all sorts of automated uh, trucks, uh, sensors, um, drills, everything automated. So, uh, yes, so the future is here already, and yeah. It's going to be a peopleless mine, is that right? Yes. There won't, there won't be drivers in the trucks in that mine. There won't be any, um, you know, people drilling into the, the ground anymore. Everything is going to be controlled um, via control loop optimization far away in an operating center uh, in Perth, possibly. So, yes, that mine is not going to have um, many people. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Sabrin. It's been interesting to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy birthday, Sting, a.k.a. Gordon Sumner. He turned 67 on Tuesday. Now, of course, he was the front man for the police. And you probably didn't know this, but he wrote a song about me watching the markets. Every move you make, I'll be watching you. That's all from me. Have a great week.